We are in Acts chapter 6 as we continue our making our way through the book of Acts in this series that we've entitled um, How God Wants Us to Be the Church in This Broken World. And the title of the message today is The Church is a Messy Place. All right, let's pray and then we'll dive into this. Lord, we love you. We thank you for saving those babies. We thank you for blessing the Asensio family with their new one. And we thank you, God, for just what you're doing here in our church and in our midst. And we pray today that your word would go forth in power and through the ministry of the Holy Spirit that you would do a work in us today. We invite you, Lord, to strengthen us and challenge us and work in our lives as we study your word in Jesus' name. And everyone said? All right. Hey, one of my favorite verses in the Bible is found in Proverbs chapter 14, verse 4. I'll share it with you in the New Living Translation. It says this, Without oxen, the stable stays clean. I love that verse because it makes sense, right? If there's no oxen in the stable, it's clean. There's no messes. But the flip side of that is if there are oxen in the stable, then that means there's going to be oxen doo-doo in the stable, right? There's going to be oxen messes because oxen leave messes. And the reason why I like that verse is the same thing could be said about the church, If a church has no people, it's going to be clean. There's not going to be any problems. Everything is just going to function like a charm. But when you add people to the church, when a church is growing, guess what? You are going to have messes because people leave and make messes. That's why the church is a messy place. That's why I remind you all the time that Here at Calvary Vista, in our church family, no one has arrived, right? None of us are perfect. None of us have it all together. We come into this place and we bring our baggage. We bring our mess. We are all broken people who are in the process of being transformed by our loving Redeemer. And the question is going to be this, are we going to focus our attention On the messes amongst us or on Jesus, the Redeemer, Jesus, the head of the church? You know, one of my mentors used to say that it's a carnal man, a fleshly man. When he looks at a woman, he focuses in on her body. But it's a spiritual man when he looks at a woman that he focuses on her head. Well, the Bible tells us that the church is the bride of Christ. And the same thing is true. It's it's carnal people who, when they look at the bride, they focus on the body. And guess what? There's a lot of flaws in this thing we call the body of Christ because we are flawed people. But it's spiritual people who, when they look at the body, the bride of Christ, they focus on the head, Jesus. Well, here in Acts chapter 6, We're going to see that this vibrant church, this church that was radically changing their their culture, the early church that we've been looking at, they dealt with messes, and people also in that church took their eyes off of Jesus, and they focused on the body. Let's read here, beginning in verse 1, and we'll read down through verse 4, and we'll pause there for a moment. 
It says, now in those days when the number of the disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. That would be the distribution of food. Then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, It is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Pause there and give me your attention. Now, most scholars believe that at this point, we're about two to three years into the life of the early church. And I want you to notice how this chapter begins. It says, now in those days when the number of the disciples was multiplying. So we see here that God is continuing to grow his church. There's more people that are getting saved. But I want you to notice that it says the number of the disciples was multiplying. And that's significant because the mandate, the mission that God had given his apostles was as they were to go out into all the world and make not converts, not believers, but disciples of all nations. And we see at that point that this is happening. Believers are becoming disciples. In other words, the people in the church were growing in their maturity and and in their commitment to following Jesus. But notice what the next line says. It tells us that there was a problem. It says there arose a complaint. And the word complaint here is the word murmur. Everybody say murmur. Okay, it says that a a complaint arose, and that's a great way to describe what happened here, because a murmur is to speak privately in a low tone. A murmur usually starts as something going on in your own heart. It's a deep-seated displeasure, but here's how a murmur can grow like a weed in the church. You take that displeasure and you share it with a friend over coffee. It might come across something like this. You know, there's something that's really been bothering me. There's something happening there at the church that's really, really been bothering me. Or, you know, I don't understand why this is happening. I don't understand why they are doing that. And so you share that little murmur with one person. And then a week later, you share it with another person. And then those two people, they share it with a couple of people, okay? And it just starts to, to grow. I thought about illustrating this. But in this YouTube era, but you know, it's probably not a good idea because somebody will take it and they'll put it, you know, on the on the on the the, the internet and say, "Look what's happening!" How rich. But I thought about it. if I took the people in the front row and just had them say, "Murmur, murmur," you know, just the front row, and then I said, "Okay, now second row, you guys do it," you know, you say, it. and then we went all the way to the back and all the way to the sides. We could see how the murmur that would start very very little, you know, the the three the, the those in the front row. Now, suddenly it's, it's a roar, right? Well, that's what's happening in the early church. This murmuring that started with a few turned into a roar. It got out of control, and it comes to the attention of the apostles. But here's the thing. We can't be too hard on the early church because all of us here, we can ourselves, we can be prone to murmuring, can't we? 
You know, wives murmur about their husbands. Husbands murmur about their wives. People murmur about the place that they work at and, and the people that they work with. They murmur, they complain, and, and they share. And it can even happen amongst God's church. It can happen in God's family, murmuring. You know, we've seen in the book of Acts God's mathematics. We've seen God add to his church. God's into addition. We've seen God multiply his church. He's into multiplication. We've seen God subtract from his church in chapter 5 with Ananias and Sapphira. God is into subtraction. But you know the one thing that God is never into? Division. He doesn't divide. In fact, we're told this in Proverbs chapter 6, that there are six things the Lord hates, yes, seven that are an abomination to him, and it says these are the, the seven, a proud look, number two, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that are swift in running to evil, a false witness who speaks lies, and notice number seven, and one who sows discord among the brethren. Guys, this is heavy. God says, these are, are seven things that, that I hate, that are an abomination to me. And at the last one on the list is one who sows discord amongst the brethren. That's why murmuring is always wrong. It's always unhealthy. It was murmuring that brought judgment upon the children of Israel in the wilderness and in the Old Testament days. And murmuring is usually the mark of a cantankerous, discontented, and unhappy spirit. And it's really an indication that there's a problem going on in that person's heart. I love the story about this family that was living in Pennsylvania, and they were moving from Johnstown to Jamestown, and it was a hot summer day, and they're driving down this country road on their way to Jamestown, and they, they stop at this farm, and the farm was owned by a guy named Farmer Jones, and they stopped at his house because it was really, really hot, and they wanted to see if they could get a glass of water, get a drink of water. He said, sure, come on in, and so he gives them water, and he asked them, where are you guys headed? And they said, well, we're moving from Johnstown to Jamestown, and, he said, and then they asked him this, do you know anything about the people in Jamestown? And he asked, he said, they asked him, what, what are they like? And he said, well, what, what were the people like where you came from? And they said, oh, they were horrible. They were gossips and they were mean and they just, you know, they, they were, were so glad to leave that place. And he says, well, I'm really sorry. You're, you're going to find people just like that in Jamestown. So they went off on their way. Well, the very next day it happened again. Another family that was moving from Johnstown to Jamestown and they stopped for water as well. And they asked him the same question. Hey, what are the people like in Jamestown? And he said, well, what were the people like where you came from? They said, oh, they were the best. They were awesome. They were just so kind and so great. And, and we're actually, it hurts us to leave them. And he says, well, you're going to find the same people just like that in Jamestown, you know. And I love that story because it's a great illustration of, of the fact that when we have a, a problem with others and the way we see others really plays a part in, in the heart and the attitude that we're going to have with them. Well, here in Acts chapter 6, there seems to be a legitimate problem that was happening, and it concerned the widows in the church. And remember at this point, the church is still living communally. If we go back to Acts chapter 2, remember we saw the day of Pentecost comes, and people from all over the Middle East, Jewish people who 
were required to go to Jerusalem to celebrate Pentecost. They're there in Jerusalem, and the, God pours out his Holy Spirit on the 120 in that upper room. And God's moving and working, and the Holy Spirit you know, falls on them, and a crowd gathers, and Peter gets up, and he preaches his first sermon, and 3,000 people give their lives to Christ. 3,000 Jewish people accept Jesus as their Messiah. And because they had just, you know, received Jesus and discovered that he's the Messiah and he's risen, they didn't want to go home. So the church out of necessity began to live communally. They began, people in Jerusalem were opening up their homes, they're renting homes. And, and in, the, in that whole process, we've seen that the church organized this food distribution program. So when they would come together, they were eating together, and part of that program dealt with caring for the widows. And that was really, really important. It was hard to be a widow in those days. There were no pension programs. There there wasn't social security. And so it fell upon the families to take care of those who were widows. But the problem was is that many of these widows were far away from their homes. Their homes were far away from Jerusalem. And many of them also, their families had ostracized them because they were now following Jesus. So it fell upon the church to take care of them. And this is where we see the problem arose. Notice in uh, verse 1 again, it says, There arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution of the food. Here's what we need to understand. There were in Jerusalem two kinds of Jewish people who had become Christians. There were the Grecian or referred to here as the Hellenist, and there were the Hebrews. What was the difference? Well, during the many years of Israel's history, they were invaded by various nations. There was Babylon and Persia and Greece that invaded them. And every single time they were invaded by a nation, there were Jewish people who were taken captive and taken away from their home. And there were other Jewish people who fled. They fled Israel, and all of these Jewish people came to be known as the Jews of the dispersion because they were dispersed, they were sprinkled, you could say, all over the Middle East. Well, when the Grecian Empire took control of the known world under the reign of Alexander the Great, the Greek language and the Greek culture and the Greek ways really permeated the whole Middle East. And that Greek influence was still very much alive when the Romans came into power. And so these Jewish people who had been dispersed into these other regions of the Middle East, they had adopted the Grecian ways. We would refer to them today as they were the progressives. And so they dressed like the Greeks. They spoke like the Greeks. They adopted some of the Grecian culture of the times. They'd be the hipsters of our day, all right, or the hipsters of their day. And so they even had their own synagogues where they, everything was done in Greek and they spoke Greek. That was the language of the time. They were known as the Hellenist. But the other Jews referred to as the Hebrews, they were the traditionalists. They were the ones who had stayed in or around Jerusalem. They had stayed true to all the old ways and traditions of Judaism. And over time, these Hebrew Jews, the traditionalists, began to look down upon the Grecian Jews, the, the progressives, the Hellenists. 
And the Hebrew Jews looked as, at the Hellenist Jews as kind of being like compromising, as second-class Jews. Well, it seems that that attitude had crept into, in a certain way, into the early church. So much so that the Hellenistic Jews had felt like their widows were being slighted or neglected in the daily distribution of the food. And so they began to murmur. They began to complain. And what started as a small complaint amongst this group of Jewish people turned into a roar until it finally comes to the ears and the attention of the apostles. And suddenly the early church was no longer unified. They were no longer together in one accord. They were no longer together having all things in common like we've seen several times already in our study of the book of Acts. And it's crazy when you think about that something as simple as an extra piece of bread or a larger helping of mashed potatoes had the possibility to destroy something so sweet and so precious that God had begun. But that's often what happens in a church is we get our focus on the body. We get our focus on the problems and we get our eyes off of Jesus. And I want to just pause here and say this. If you see a problem in our church And there are problems in our church family. I want to say this. If you notice a problem, chances are God has revealed that problem to you because he wants you to be a part of the solution. That's why he's revealing it to you. And so what should you do when you see a problem? What's the first thing you should do? You should pray. Before you talk to anybody else, you need to talk to God. And you need to ask God, hey, I'm seeing this situation. Do you want me to be a part of the solution? Lord, show me what I can do to help. If you see a hole in the body, instead of complaining about it, ask the Lord, hey, how, do, how can you use me to help plug that hole? If you see somebody struggling in the body, don't ignore them because God's revealing that to you probably because he wants you to come alongside of them. Now, if you're praying and you're asking the Lord, hey, how can I be a part of the solution and you're not getting an answer? Here's the second thing I would encourage you to do. Come and meet with one of our pastors or one of our leaders and just say something along these lines. Hey, I see this potential problem in the body and I'm just wondering, how can I help? How can God use me? You see, that's how the church stays healthy. That's how the church stays unified. That's how a healthy church deals with the messes that arises within them. Well, here in the early church, they didn't do either of those things. People began to just complain and to murmur, and the murmuring grew. It arose, and it finally came to the attention of the the apostles. But here we see the marks of great leadership. Because the apostles, they don't ignore the problem. They don't say, you know, too bad, so sad. You know, yeah, there's problems and we can't do anything about it. They dealt with it. Look at verse 2 again. It says, then the 12 summoned the multitude of the disciples. So they get everybody together 
for what we would call a family meeting. And they said, it's not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Here's what we see happening. The church is getting organized. The problem that existed is going to be fixed as the Holy Spirit inspires the leaders to organize the church in a different format in order to solve this problem. And this is so important to note because sometimes, you know, in the church, people think that organization is bad. That they they think that any organization somehow quenches the Holy Spirit. But as I read the Bible, you know what I see over and over again? Our God is a God of order. He's always moving and working in, in orderly ways. That's why he inspires Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 to write these words about the use of the gift of, of the Holy Spirit in the church. He says, let all things be done. That's first. Let, there's, let there be freedom. As it relates to the gift, let, let all things be done. But then he adds this, but decently and in order. So God is saying, in in my church, yeah, I want there to be freedom. I want all things to be done, but there has to be order. It can't be chaos. You know, we see this as well in the way that God has designed the human body. The human body is this incredible creation of God. And there's, you know, all these parts to to the body and all these, you know, different parts of our body that, that function in certain ways. And it's been put together perfectly by the Lord. Well, you know what? The body of Christ is the same way. The body of Christ, the bride of Christ is this living organism, it's living, it's moving, it's expanding. It's a living organism that just like the human body is made up of different parts, the, the church, the living organism, the body of Christ is made up of different parts. We call them people, people with different gifts that God has given. And the more people you have, the more that living organism, the more people you have in that living organism, the more organization is necessary. But I will say this. You can organize things to the point where you do quench the Holy Spirit if you organize too much. So wisdom is needed. Balance is needed. And we see a great example of that here. I want to notice a couple of things about what the apostles do here. The first thing that I want you to notice is they established a priority. They said, you need to choose seven men that we can appoint over this situation. And this was why they said, because we need to give ourselves continually to the study of God's word and to prayer. Now you can read that and think to yourself, you know, that kind of sounds like the apostles are saying that they're too good or they're too important to wait on tables. And so they're saying, choose seven men who are less or not as important as we are. That's not the case at all. You see, these were the guys who had Jesus on the night before he was going to the cross, wash their feet. 
Jesus takes the role of the, the ultimate lowest servant in the household, and he washes their dirty, stinky feet. And then he says, now you do to one another as I have done to you. These are the men who heard Jesus instruct them, and they got this. That whoever wants to be the greatest among you, let him be the servant of all. They were, they, these were men who watched Jesus model so perfectly servant leadership. So they are in no way here downgrading the ministry of serving tables. You see, the, the decision that the apostles make had nothing to do with preference, but it had everything to do with priority. And they're saying our priority needs to be the word and prayer. What's interesting about this is that The same word used in verse 2 for serve is the same word used in verse 4 for ministry. So in essence, the apostles were saying, we will serve the word, the spiritual food. That needs to be our priority. But you appoint men who can serve the physical food, and that will be their priority. You see, the apostles understood so clearly that we can't do Everything. So we must give our attention, our priority to the preaching and teaching of the Word of God and prayer. And I have to just say, as the primary teacher, as the lead pastor and primary teacher here at Calvary Vista in our adult services, this has to be my priority as well. That my priority has to be the studying of the Word of God, the teaching of the Word of God, and praying for our church. And that's why on a given week, I'll spend upwards of 20 hours a week in preparation and prayer for our Sunday morning messages. And I know what some of you are thinking, man, 20 hours, they, your messages should be a lot better than they are. But uh, <laughs> I'm doing my best, all right? But, uh, but seriously, I mean, it, it takes that amount of time. And that has to be the priority. I'll spend about 20 hours on Sunday morning, about 10 hours on, uh, for Wednesday night for that study and putting that together in prayer. And so that's one of the reasons when people you know, call and they say, hey, I want to I meet with Pastor Rob. And they might be told, well, he'd, he'd love to meet with you, but it might take two weeks. It has nothing to do with preference. I love to meet with people. I love to do counseling. But it has everything to do with priority. And I realize that I have to give my priority to the teaching of the Word of God and praying for our church. It was homiletics um, professor, Dr. Nathaniel Van Cleef, that said this, if you preach for one hour to a hundred people and you are ill-prepared, you just wasted a hundred hours of God's time. So I take that seriously. Now, what's interesting, though, is there are other pastors on our staff and leaders on our staff that their priority is all about meeting with people. That's their primary focus. So you might have to wait two weeks to get an appointment with me, but you can see them tomorrow because that's their priority. It's not about preference. It's about priority. And so we see the apostles set this priority. Hey, we, we, it's not that we're too good for this, but we have to give our attention to the studying and the preaching of God's word and to prayer. So that's the first thing that they did. The second thing they did was 
instruct the church to choose proven men that they could put over this. And I want you to notice the criteria or the characteristics of these seven men. They, said it's, they, they say, choose seven men from among you. Okay? Seven men from among you. In other words, don't go outside. Don't go outside of the church. Don't go hire some guys who, you know, are, are working as waiters at the, the restaurant down the street. You know, no, don't do that. Let these men be seven men from among you. And so as, as the believers were growing, as they were maturing, they realized there should be seven capable men among us who can be put over this. And I just want to say this about our church and our leadership. All of our leaders, all of our elders, the, the, the group of guys that make up our leadership team, there's eight of us right now, usually somewhere eight to 12 guys. These men are all from our church. They've all been raised up in our church. These are guys that help us lead and, and, and pray for and have oversight over our church. And I just mention that because I know in some churches they'll have, you know, on their elder board, pastors from all these different churches. And I'm not knocking that, but we have felt using this model that the way God wants us to do what we do here is that these men would be men who are from among us. The second thing about these men is they were to be men of good reputation. Men of proven character. They, they were to be men who had a good witness, in other words, amongst the congregation. They were, and, and the same thing is true about the men who serve here at Calvary Vista. The men who serve on our elder board, our elder team, are vetted. They have to have a good reputation amongst the body. We believe that, that the body should never, ever be surprised when we say that, you know, so-and-so is, you know, becoming an elder here at our church, that they'd be like, that guy? Are you serious? No, we want the response of the body to be, of course, that makes all the sense in the world because we know that guy. We know that he loves Jesus. We know that he's a good husband. We know that he is a, a good father to his children. And we have seen just how he cares and loves the church and has a desire to serve the church. So these were to be men of good reputation, proven character. And number three, they were to be men full of the Holy Spirit. Now, in Scripture, to be full of something means to be controlled by it. So these were to be men who were controlled by the Holy Spirit. Men who were spirit-led, who, who were not controlled by their passions. They weren't men who were controlled by ambition or want of power. No, these were men who reflected and, re and radiated the Holy Spirit. These were men who the fruit of the Spirit would be a part of their life, the primary fruit of the Spirit being love, and the other uh, fruits listed there are characteristics of love, that these would be men who were full of love and joy and peace, patience and kindness and goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Also, being full of the Holy Spirit would refer to men who were empowered by the Holy Spirit. So in other words, they were men who were not seeking to do the work of the Lord in their own strength. But these were men who were chosen because they were spirit-led and spirit-empowered. These were men whose lives were characterized by a dependency upon God. 
for everything. That's what it means, full of the Holy Spirit. The fourth thing it says that they were to be men full of wisdom. And wisdom is knowledge applied. So the idea of them being full of wisdom is these are men who know the word of God, but they also know how to apply it into everyday practical situations. Now, some of you might be thinking, why such a serious qualifications for guys who are just going to serve tables? Guys who are just serving food. It kind of seems like, wow, that's like heavy-duty qualifications. Here's the reason. Don't miss this. You might want to write this in your Bible. They weren't just serving food. They were serving people. They were dealing with people. So they needed to be full of the Holy Spirit so they could be sensitive to the Spirit, to the needs that would happen in the body. They needed to be men of integrity to handle matters fairly, not showing partiality. They needed to be men who knew the Word of God well enough that they could bring counsel and wisdom to meet those needs that were happening amongst them with the Word of God. So this was the plan that was presented to the church. Notice their response in verse 5. And the saying pleased the whole multitude. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch, whom they set before the apostles, and when they had prayed, they laid hands on them. Now, there's something really noteworthy about this group of men. All of these names that we just read are Greek names. That means that these men were probably chosen from among the complaining party. They were part of the Hellenistic group of Jewish people in the church. They were the Greek-speaking community. And I think this is so beautiful. Because the church people, the body, looked at the situation and they thought, okay, the problem is with the Greek widows. They feel like they're being neglected. So let's choose seven Greek guys who are going to be extra sensitive to the needs of those Greek widows. And I think if you look at that, it's such a beautiful picture of the body functioning in love and functioning in grace. That they're looking at this situation and said, who's going to be the most sensitive? Let's pick some Greek guys that meet this qualification. And so we see here the dissension that was happening that could have potentially could have destroyed the church as nipped in the bud and unity prevailed. And then we see in verse 7, three powerful results of what took place because of this. The first thing we see is it says the word of God spread. What does that mean? When it says the word of God spread or increased in the Bible, the phrase it's used several times in scripture and every time it means that God's word abounded more and more. That the word of God was widely proclaimed and probably because the apostles were able to give their full attention to the study and the teaching of the Word of God. And so the second result is directly connected to that as, it says, as the Word of God spreading. It, then it says, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And I want you to note this. 
the number not of the believers, but of the disciples. So what it means is that the apostles are giving themselves to the word and they're teaching the word and people are going deeper and deeper in their walk. They're becoming, becoming more committed to Jesus. They're becoming disciples. And that's always the effect of the word of God abounding in a place. Believers become disciples. People are growing in their faith. And the third result we see may come as a surprise. It says, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. Why were there priests coming to Jesus at this point? This is purely speculation on my part, but I, but I think there's probably some good validity to this. You see, in Judaism, it was the job of the priests to take care of the poor. It was their duty. Okay. Well, these priests are watching the church. And they're seeing all of these people in the church functioning like priests. In taking care of the poor. And taking care of the needy. And they're doing it. The church is doing it. Not out of duty. But they're doing it out of devotion. Devotion to Jesus. And devotion to one another. And the hearts of these priests were moved. As a result. And they began to follow Jesus. As they watched the church act like priests. And you know what? That really is God's plan for his church. Peter would write this in 1 Peter chapter 1, or 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5. He says, and you yourselves, this is what God's doing. This is what he's wanting to do amongst us. And you yourselves are being built up to a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And you know what? Part of those acceptable sacrifices are doing good deeds and taking care of the poor and the needy amongst us. And so we wrap this up by seeing here was this problem that arose, this murmuring that grew, that had the potential to rip the church apart. But because it was handled wisely and spiritually, the church gets stronger and it grows more and more in its impact. And guys, that's the way it's supposed to be. That's how we be the church in this broken world. That's how we deal with the messes that can be amongst us. Now, as we close today, this is what God put on my heart. His goal for our church, what he's wanting to do is raise up a priesthood of believers. He wants to see believers in our church becoming disciples. He wants all of us, his heart is that all of us would be growing in maturity and that we would, we would be growing in our ministry toward each other. And taking care of each other and taking care of the needs in our body and the needs that are around us and the needs that, that are in our community. But just like we see in this story, God didn't move powerfully. What we see in verse 7, the move of God takes place after they dealt with the murmuring. After they dealt with the critical spirit in their hearts. 
And I think the Lord is saying the same thing to us. I want to move. I want to work. I want to do something in you and with you and through you. But, but the problem is there's a criticalness. There's a murmuring. And, and I know, listen, I know all of us, we can be so guilty of this. Every single one of us. We murmur you know, against our, our husband, our, our wife. We murmur against people you know, we murmur, that we work with. We can find ourselves murmuring against the government. A lot of that going on. And probably a lot of it's justified. But, but, you know, but, but I'll tell you this. We'll learn this on this Wednesday night in 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 18. It says, in everything. Everybody say everything. In everything give thanks. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. And I'll tell you this. As a person who has traveled to like 30 different countries around the world, America still is the best place to live. I'm telling you. All right. It is. But we can find ourselves. All of us can be guilty of this. All of us have been guilty of this. But I think there's some of us that that murmuring spirit has become a weed in our hearts. And it's something that is being used right now in your life as a deterrent for God to do the work that he wants to do in you and the work that he wants to do through you. Now, now God didn't give me any names, all right? He didn't like, you know, say, it's these people, no. (laughs) But he just said, this is an issue with some people and I want to deal with it. And so this is what we're going to do as we close today. I'm going to have the band come up right now. And we're going to just take some time right now in song to bring our hearts before the Lord. To ask God. We're going to sing that song. Spirit of the living God, fall afresh on me. Because this is the question. The question is this. What do you want to be full of? They were to choose men who were full of the Holy Spirit and full of wisdom. What do you want to be full of? Do you want to be full of yourself? Because that's what happens when we begin to murmur. We're just so focused on our own needs that aren't being met. You want to be full of yourself? You want to be full of murmuring? Or do you want to be full of Jesus? Do you want to be full of the Spirit? Well, this is how this starts. It starts with repentance. And repentance is... A change of mind. I'm changing my mind about this situation that I've been so murmuring and complaining about. And it's a change of mind that leads to a change of attitude that leads to a change of direction. And this is what God put on my heart this week about today. He says, I want you to encourage the body to respond. To encourage them to deal with this. To not let it linger in their hearts. Because if they respond, I'm going to meet them. And I believe that God is going to bring this morning, in this place, significant change if we'll respond. If we'll say, Lord, I confess. I've been murmuring and complaining about, and you fill in the blank. But I don't want to be full of that. I don't want that to mark my life. I want to be full of your spirit. I want to be full of Jesus. So in this song, there's a line where it says this. It says, Lord, melt me. Melt my heart, Lord. Show me where where I'm wrong. Take this away. Remove this. Melt me. Mold me. 
shape me. And that's what we're asking. And then it says, and fill me. But before he can fill us, he has to empty us. And that's what this moment is about. So as the band begins to just lead us in this song, I'm going to ask our pastors and elders to come up. You guys can start coming up right now. They'll be up on the sides. Some of the people on our prayer team are going to be up front. And I want to encourage you. If you have some, something in your heart that you need to deal with, that you maybe been murmuring about, come up and get with one of these guys. And just say, hey, can you pray for me? I just need to confess this. You need to go into all the details. We don't need a story. But just say, man, I, I need to confess this to the Lord. Because I don't want to be full of that. I want to be full of Jesus. And as we're in this time, if you're just like, man, I, I just want more of Jesus in my life, I want to encourage you, come up. Get prayer. Come up and kneel down here if you want to just come in an attitude of surrender. This is really between you and the Lord. And I want to encourage you, don't, don't be thinking, don't be worried about, oh, what are people going to think about me if I go up? Listen, we're so consumed about ourselves, nobody's thinking about you anyway, all right? <laughs> This is about you and Jesus. And so God wants to meet us right now as we respond, as we turn our hearts to him, as we bring these things in our heart that aren't right and we bring them before the Lord and asking for prayer, confessing. As we, we come, and I think all of us really should have that heart that just says, Lord, I... I if you're full of anything else but Jesus, say, God, empty me of that because I want to be filled with you and your Holy Spirit. God wants to meet us now. So, Lord, we invite you right now to move in our hearts. And, Lord, we want to be sensitive. We don't want there to be anything in our lives that would hinder us from what you want to do. So, Lord, have your way in our hearts, in our lives. And we thank you, God, that you are so good to even point these, this out to us today. Because, Lord, we don't want there to be anything in our lives that would hold back what you want to do in us or through us. So, Lord, empty us. Melt us. Mold us. So that you can fill us.